Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll invite you to be getting a Bible out and be opening it up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Be ready to read in that passage and all of the other passages that we'll be reading and studying from in just a moment. We'll be in the Bible a lot this morning and you'll be helped tremendously if you'll get one out and follow along and uh, take part in this part of our worship as we reverence God through the study of His Word. As you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I will echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. just felt like when I walked in the building this morning, just everybody's energy level was a little bit higher. I think maybe that might be due to that extra hour of sleep last night. This is my favorite Sunday of the year because of getting that extra hour of sleep. But I'm so glad that you chose to be here today. We have guests in attendance and we appreciate so very much the fact that, that you've come to be with us today. If you have a question or just an observation about something that you see or hear done, here today, bring that to our attention. We would just be most glad to sit down and to discuss those things with an open Bible. And speaking of an open Bible, hope you got yours open now to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read together in verse 13. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What's it like... What's it like to be an archaeologist? Well, contrary to popular belief, it's probably not nearly as thrilling as Indiana Jones makes it out to be. You probably don't get to be chased around by Nazis and get to wear a cool fedora and whip people with a bullwhip. That's probably not what normal archaeology life is like. But that doesn't mean that archaeology archaeology doesn't come and bring with it its own share of, of excitement, its own breed of excitement. After all, how neat would it be to to dig up and find some old artifact and to find out that it's really valuable and really costly, like being able to find the Florentine diamond that's been missing for centuries. Or maybe to make some other kind of new discovery that sheds light on an ancient civilization that hasn't existed for thousands of years. Well, that's actually what a couple of Egyptologists, and that's just a fancy word for archaeologists who specialize in the study of ancient Egypt, That's what a couple of Egyptologists set out to do, to learn about the process of ancient Egyptian bread making. Now that may not sound all that exciting to you, but their work, I was reading about it in an issue of National Geographic, and I was really just quite impressed with how painstakingly these two guys researched everything that there is to know about how ancient Egyptians baked bread 4,500 years ago. These guys, however, were not just content to learn about how you make that bread. No, what they decided to do was something that had not been done in centuries. 45 centuries to be exact. And that is to actually bake some of that bread. They set about the task of baking a loaf of authentic ancient Egyptian bread. What you are looking at here in this picture is the bakery that they actually recreated in an attempt to restore ancient Egyptian bread baking practices so that they could then make an authentic loaf of bread just like they had centuries ago. In fact, the article in National Geographic, it concluded by saying that the end result of all of their efforts was that for the first time in more than 4,000 years, a perfect loaf of bread popped out from an old kingdom-style oven. And I read that article, and I looked at all of those pictures, and I thought to myself, that's just pretty neat. That's just pretty cool. But you know what? 
I also thought to myself that if archaeologists can figure out how to restore ancient Egyptian bread baking, then surely we can figure out how to restore New Testament Christianity. If those guys can do all of that research and they can cook up a loaf of bread that hadn't been baked in 4,500 years, then why can't we do some research and see if we can't bake ourselves up a church just like the one that we read about in the New Testament roughly 2,000 years ago. Because the truth of the matter is, if you start taking a look around and surveying our world, what you will see is you will see lots of different churches today, but not many of them seem like the one church that you can read about in the New Testament. Somewhere along the way, people, people started to deviate from that recipe, if you will. Which is why now at present here in Pulaski County, we have like... 50-something different religious groups meeting and worshiping in the name of the Lord even on this very day. Well, what if we just went back to the Bible? What if we just went back to the original source material? What if we all put on our archaeologist hats? What if we did some research? What if we focused on what those ancient people did during the time of the apostles? Then maybe, just maybe, we could bake a church like you read about in the New Testament. Well, this morning, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to talk about what it takes to bake a New Testament church. What I'd like for us to do is I'd actually like for us to use some of the principles that are set forth in the example of those two Egyptologists to see if we can't draw out three principles that will help us in our quest to restore genuine, authentic New Testament Christianity. And I want to say to you this morning that this is... This is fundamental stuff. Nothing new up my sleeves today. And I really do want our young people to pay extra careful attention this morning because this is the kind of stuff, this is the kind of lesson that will help to secure your foundation in Christ Jesus. But I need to say as well that these are the kinds of principles that all of us need to be reminded of from time to time. How exactly do you bake a New Testament church? Well, let's just start with that passage that we began with a few moments ago. You might be wondering, is it ever going to get back to 2 Timothy 1 verse 13? Well, let's look at that verse again. Because there the Apostle Paul says, follow the pattern in the sound words that you have heard from me. That word pattern, maybe a synonym for that, would be the word blueprint. But maybe an even better synonym for our purposes this morning would be the word recipe. Follow the recipe, Paul is saying. Well, just like those Egyptologists learn, if you're going to do any kind of bacon, then you have to start, you have to start with the right ingredients. When I first heard about those guys' project, I thought to myself, bake a loaf of bread? Come on, what's the big deal? Just get on Pinterest, find a recipe and just do it. But actually, actually it was a really big deal. Because those guys weren't just going for any kind of bread. They were going for authenticity, which means that they could not just run by their local Kroger and pick up a Betty Crocker starter kit and grab a few bags of white white lily flour. That, that, that just wasn't going to work. Why? Because it wouldn't be authentic. It wouldn't be Egyptian. And so what do you do? Where exactly do you go to get wheat like they had in the times of ancient Egypt? Well, it turns out that the Egyptians used a kind of wheat called emmer. Well, where would you go to get some emmer wheat today? Well, these guys did some research and they found a farmer in California 
who actually specialized in growing ancient grains. So they went and they visited him and they got themselves a good load of emmer wheat, authentic ancient Egyptian grain. Now what about yeast? If you're going to bake bread, you've got to have some yeast. How are you going to make that bread rise up? Well, they wanted this to be as authentic as it possibly could be. So what they did is they actually traveled all the way to Egypt and they got some spores and some bacteria from a piece of 4,000-year-old pottery from Egypt and they then germinated their own yeast. They wanted it to be as faithful to the original as possible. On top of all of that, from the various drawings that they had seen inside of the tombs and the carvings of that time, they were able to surmise and figure out the size and the dimensions of the pots that you're going to bake those in and what exactly those should look like. And so what they then did is they hired some Egyptian locals who then actually made them some authentic Egyptian bread pans. And that, that is exactly what that looked like. And when you add all of that together, what that says is, is that says, if you want to bake Egyptian bread, then you got to use the right ingredients. Now what about for us? What if we're going to bake us up a New Testament church? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to have to do the exact same thing. We're going to have to use the right ingredients. Can I tell you, there's only two of those ingredients. Did you know that? They're both found actually in the same passage. Would you look in Luke chapter 8? In Luke chapter 8, there you will find the two ingredients that are necessary for baking up and restoring New Testament Christianity. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells here the parable of the sower. And there He identifies the ingredients that are necessary to make a disciple. In Luke chapter 8, this is verse 11. Here's the first of those. Luke 8 verse 11, Jesus says, now the parable is this, the seed that is sown, it is the Word of God. What is it? that will draw people to Christ? What is it that will germinate a Christian? What is it that will tell people what they need to know so that they can know the Lord, so that they can be right with the Lord, and so that they can serve the Lord? I'll tell you what it is. It's the Bible. It is the Word of God. And when you consult some more of our additional, original source material, like like the book of Acts... What you'll find is that over and over and over again, the Word of God was the primary ingredient. Can I just show you that? Look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, let's just stack up some verses in Acts. In Acts 2, when the gospel is first preached on the day of Pentecost, notice the emphasis in verse 41, in Acts 2 and in verse 41, that those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Would you look across the page in Acts chapter 4? In Acts 4, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin council, they didn't like Peter and John and all the apostles preaching all of this stuff. So verse 2 says they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You see, it's about teaching and then hearing that word. If you drop on down in chapter 4, after the apostles are arrested and they then get out of jail, you'd think maybe they would say, hey, we don't need to be doing any more of this preaching stuff. Well, look at verse 31. They prayed and they asked God for help. Notice this. And the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. It's about speaking the Word of God. Jump ahead to Acts chapter 8. 
In Acts chapter 8, when an even greater persecution fell upon those early Christians, what did they do? Did they stick their head in the sand? Did they go running for their lives, afraid of all that was going to happen to them? Actually, no. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered, they went about preaching the Word. One more in this connection. Let's just move ahead in Acts. Look in Acts 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is here in the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19 and in verse 8, he entered the synagogue... And for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. The end of verse 9 says he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10 now, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We could look at dozens upon dozens of passages in the book of Acts alone where the operative words are speak. Teach and preach. But I want you to notice what it is that was taught. It was not people's opinions that were being taught. It was not human think-sos that were being taught. It was not various dogmas and creeds that were voted on by councils of men that were being taught. No. What were these guys teaching? They were teaching the living Word of God. Ingredient number one for baking up a New Testament church is God's Word. Would you go back to Luke chapter 8? I told you there were two ingredients, and both of them are found in that passage. In Luke chapter 8, the second ingredient is told in the parable that not only do you need the Word of God, but look, drop down to verse 15 now. Verse 15 says that as for that seed, that Word that is sown in good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Ingredient number two for restoring New Testament Christianity is honest and good hearts. People who are receptive to the Word of God. People who are interested in knowing the Lord and serving Him. People who want to do Bible things in Bible ways. You get the Word of God in and around people who have good and honest hearts, you just watch. Amazing things are going to happen. Like for example in Acts 17. Would you look in Acts chapter 17? Paul and Silas come to the city of Berea, not Kentucky, but Berea in the old, the old world. In the city of Berea, they meet some people who are described as being fair-minded. What do we know about these people? Acts 17 verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word and they received it with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if those things are so. Verse 12, and many of them therefore believe. Do you see it? When those two key ingredients, when they come together, it produces it produces a Christian. And I need to say very, very clearly here that when you talk about the ingredients, you can't tinker with the ingredients. Do not water down the Word of God. Do not subtract from the Word of God. Do not add to the Word of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine those Egyptologists getting all their ingredients together to make that emmer bread? And then they decide, you know what? This is missing something. We need to dump some NutraSweet on that. Yeah, that'll just make it taste better. It'll be more palatable to us. Well, you know what? It might make it taste better and it might make it more palatable, but then, but then it wouldn't be authentic, would it? It wouldn't be like they had in the original. It would be just some cheap imitation, a cheap knockoff. 
In the same way, God's Word, it cannot be altered, it cannot be changed, it cannot be amended. The only way to produce authentic New Testament Christians and thereby authentic New Testament churches is to bring the pure Word of God into contact with pure and honest and good hearts. Those are the essential ingredients for baking up a New Testament church. Which then brings us to this second principle of restoration. And that is, you got to then take those ingredients and you got to very carefully follow the recipe. That is, you've got to do it in exactly the same way as those ancient people did. You know, what if those Egyptologists, what if they had went to all the trouble of collecting that emmer wheat, going over to Egypt and getting some of that yeast, having those people make those bread pans for them? What if they then took all of that stuff together, got all the right ingredients but then decide they're going to throw it inside of a microwave and make some bread that way? What if they decide they're going to take all that stuff and just pop it into a modern-day conventional oven, and they're going to set the digital timer to 20 minutes, and they're going to crank that up to 400 degrees? How's how's that going to work? It ain't going to work at all. You can't bake authentic bread that way. You're not going to be able to do it the way that the ancients did it that way. If you want want to make a loaf of authentic Egyptian bread, the kind that... The kind that Joseph would have eaten? The kind that Moses would have eaten? Now, this is putting some scale to this. Then you've got to try to do it exactly the way that those ancient Egyptians did it. For example, what that means is, is that means you have to actually dig some holes in a bed of ashes. And you have to then take those pots and bury them down deep in the ashes. And then you got to put these dome lids on the top of them, these domes that were put on the top, and that then forms kind of like a little miniature oven. And what happens is, is in the process of time, that ends up baking up a loaf of bread, and the result of that is exactly what you see on the shoulder of that man. That's actually one of the two Egyptologists. You get authentic old kingdom bread. In the article he said it actually tastes like what sourdough bread is really supposed to taste like. Right ingredients carefully implemented in exactly the right way. And the truth of the matter is, there are a lot of churches today who do seem to have some of the ingredients right. There's Bibles in the pew racks, people carrying around Bibles. There's people who seem to have some interest in the Word of God. Those are great ingredients to have. But the fact is, lots of churches today don't have real, authentic New Testament Christianity. Why is that? Well, that's because they're not doing it the way that they did it in the New Testament. They've got the ingredients, but they are not carefully following the instructions and doing it the way that they did it in the time of the first century. Somebody says, well, what exactly are you talking about? Well, for example, I'm talking about following the New Testament recipe for the worship of the church. How exactly did churches worship in the New Testament? What kind of activities does the New Testament show us that those early Christians involved themselves in whenever they came together in assemblies just like this. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verses 23 down through verse 29, Paul gives some instructions there about how to observe the Lord's Supper. That is, the partaking of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. Those symbols that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. It is a memorial to the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those Christians did that and they needed to do that in the right way. Furthermore, in that same epistle in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about how the church, they took up a collection. 
The free will offerings that are given every first day of the week, Paul says there. Paul doesn't say anything. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament does it say anything about the church making its money by, by bake sales or by having you know chariot washes or anything along those lines. No, there's none of that. It's the free will offerings of the saints every first day of the week. Furthermore, in the Ephesian letter, in Ephesians 5, verses 19, 20, and 21, Christians are commanded there to be involved in some music to the Lord. And that is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Singing is described as being a congregational activity that we do for one another, but that we also do to the praise and to the glory of God. Notice once again, nowhere in Ephesians 5 or anywhere else in the New Testament, is there anything said about the New Testament church coming together and forming praise bands or having rock concerts or having instrumental music in their worship? There's none of that found in the New Testament. That's not part of the original recipe. We see, we see singing. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7, we learn that when the church came together on that particular occasion, they heard some preaching. In fact, they heard a lot of preaching that day. Because Paul continued his sermon, his speech, until midnight, Luke tells us. Now we'll remind you once again that that preaching, it was based upon, and it was all about presenting the Word, that original ingredient, the Word of God. And then, of course, we find as well in the New Testament that the early church, they were involved in prayer together. Certainly would have been involved in prayer on an individual basis, but they also prayed together, Acts 2, verse 42, talks about those original converts in Jerusalem and how they came together and they devoted themselves to the worshipful activity of praying with one another. You read your New Testament, and that's pretty much all you're going to find as it pertains to the worship of the New Testament church. That is the recipe that those early Christians followed. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's a wonderful little summary of what these Christians were accomplishing whenever they came together and they did those things. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says there in verse 24, in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That worship was designed to help stir each other up as they did those things to the honor and the glory of God. Well, somebody says, okay, the church was involved in worship. I get that. That's pretty important. That's pretty important to the life of a church. But what else did the church do besides worshiping God? Clearly they didn't worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all together in a corporate assembly like this. What else did they use their energies and their time and their resources for other than worship? Well, that's a great question. Because that gets us to talk about the work of the church. And once again, if we just go back to our original source documentation and do a little bit of excavating, what we find is we find that that work That work was primarily about threefold in nature. For example, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanks the Philippian church because they had sent funds to him so that he could spread the gospel. The Bible word for that is evangelism. In Philippians chapter 4, look in verse 15, Paul says there, You Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The early church, they helped to support gospel preachers. 
They sent out missionaries. They were involved in the proclamation of the Word of God, both near and far. In fact, if you'll turn back a page or two in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, you'll see that not only was there a need to preach the gospel to the lost, but there was also a need to preach and to teach and to encourage the saved so that they can grow. And the Bible word for that is the word edification. In Ephesians 4, look in verse 11. Paul says there that God gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by by false doctrines. Rather, verse 15, we're going to speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, that's what the church was to be doing edifying, building up the body of Christ. And in fact, we're doing that. We're doing that right now during this hour. Is that all that the church did? Just involved in evangelism and edification? Well, actually, no. Look at Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, we also see that another important work of the New Testament church was that brethren took care of brethren when they were in need. And the Bible word for that is the word benevolence. We see a great example of that in Acts the 11th chapter. Not the only place, but it's one great place. In Acts chapter 11 and in verse 27, it says that in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over all the world. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and by Saul. And so the ancient record is here. And it is very, very clear. We don't have to go into some ancient tomb somewhere and start dusting the walls and carry torches so that we're able to see. We don't have to be dodging poisonous darts or watching for booby traps like Indiana Jones. No. We can just open up our Bibles. And we can just read it. God has not left us in the dark at all about these things as to what it is that the church should be doing. In fact, the Bible even spells out some things about the organization of the church. In fact, I can bang all that out in one verse. Look in Philippians 1. In Philippians chapter 1, of course, we recognize that Jesus is the head of His church. But what is the organizational structure of His body? You know, there's all kinds of ideas about that today. Some churches have a clergy laity system with popes and cardinals and bishops and priests where, where, where that's how that works. Some churches operate under the single pastor system where one guy, he's in charge of everything and he makes all the decisions and he decides exactly everything about that church. Some churches have a board or a council and they make determinations about stuff. Well, which one of those is right? Well, look at Philippians chapter 1. Here's some clarity. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. The Lord's church is to be composed of overseers, also known as elders or also known as shepherds, and they help to lead and to feed the flock. And then Paul identifies as well that there are to be deacons, that is, special servants, special ministers of the church. And I should add that when you talk about those two categories of people, those are people who have met, those are men 
who have met special qualifications recorded for us in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 in order to be appointed to those roles. They need to meet those qualifications. And then notice as well in Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul also mentions the saints, Christians, just members of the church. And that, that's it. That's it. All of those members, they then work together to carry out the cause of Christ in that church, in that community, and maybe even beyond as the Lord grants opportunity. Now, as soon as somebody comes along and they take a look at that and they want to start making some adjustments, start making some tweaks, start taking that recipe and kind of jazzing it up a little bit, you know, worship... Worship can be kind of boring just doing that singing and praying and giving and preaching and Lord's Supper and all that kind of stuff. How about we kind of jazz things up a little bit? Let's make things more exciting a little bit. Well, wait, 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 wait. That wouldn't be authentic New Testament worship. Somebody maybe says, well, what about the church getting involved in politics? That would really open up a lot of doors for us. Or what about the church building a big multi-purpose facility for fun and for recreation? That would provide us lots of great opportunities. Or what about the church appointing women to serve as elders and as deacons and in these various roles? Well, wait, 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 wait. Did they do that in the New Testament? Is that what the ancients did? I'm going to need to see a passage in order to be involved in that kind of thing. I guess you could take some of that emmer bread, you could spread some peanut butter, You could put some jelly on that thing, and you know what? It probably would taste a lot better. But you can't put peanut butter and jelly on that bread and then say, now this, this is what the ancient Egyptians ate. Joseph, oh, he just loved those PB&J sandwiches. No, you can't say that. Because that's not genuine. And when we modify, when we tweak, when we change what the church is to be about, whether that's in worship, whether that's in its work, whether that's in the organization, we can talk about the name and the scriptural designation of the church and of individual believers. We can talk about a lot of different things. But as soon as we start making changes there, then we have altered God's recipe. Our restoration, it is contingent on carefully following the pattern. Carefully following The recipe. Which brings me then to this third and final principle for baking a New Testament church. And really this is something that underlies both of these first two principles this morning. And that is that there must be a desire, there must be a willingness to go to the trouble of going back and restoring that original church. Let me just stop and ask because I have been to most of the homes of people who are here in attendance this morning. Why don't any of you have an ancient Egyptian bakery set up in your backyard? Why have none of you sent off to the guy in California to get some of that emmer wheat? Why have none of you boarded a plane and went over to Egypt and gathered up some of those spores and some of that bacteria so that you can make authentic Egyptian yeast? Why haven't you done that? Why are you not getting busy with restoring some authentic old kingdom bread? Well, probably the answer that you're going to give is that, well, that just seems like a lot of work, and that seems like a lot of trouble, that I'm just not really willing to put the time and the energy and the effort into doing. You know, I guess on a Sunday morning, hearing Josh get up and tell the story about the two guys in the National Geographic article who, who did do that, I mean, yeah, that's kind of neat and that's kind of cool. I mean, that's, that's kind of a novel thing. It's enough to hold our attention for a half hour or so. And hey, good for those guys. Glad those guys were willing to do that. Everybody needs a hobby, so good on those guys. 
But you know what? That's not really enough to motivate us to get up and to go to all the trouble that they did, is it? I mean, come on. Have you been to Kroger recently? They've got all kinds of bread down there. And it's available on the cheap and it is available on the gold. They've got Wonder Bread. They've got Sunday. They've got butternut. They've got wheat bread. They've got white bread. They've got raisin bread. Come on. I don't need Emmer bread. And I don't need to go to all the hassle to make Emmer bread because, well, because bread, bread is bread. Come on. Bread is bread is bread. And you know what? That's about where I believe most people are when it comes to Christianity. I mean, yeah, you all down there in the Church of Christ, I guess that's kind of neat what you all are doing, trying to go back to ancient ways, trying to do that the way they did in the time of the first century. That's great and all, but come on! Church is church! And whether we're talking about a New Testament church, or whether we're talking about a 21st century denominational church, what's the big deal? It's all the same. Church is church is church. And you know what? It is exactly... That kind of lazy approach to Christianity that prevents so many churches today and keeps them from being less, keeps them from being all that they could be, being the genuine, authentic, and real deal, the kind of church you read about in the New Testament. When people lack the desire, when people lack the willingness to do the hard work of restoration, then the church will never be anything but a lazy and cheap knockoff and imitation. Can I tell you why it is that we need to be willing to go to that trouble, to go the extra mile to restore the New Testament church? First and foremost, because the church belongs to Christ and not to us. In Acts chapter 20, in Acts 20, as Paul is bidding his farewell to the Ephesian elders, in Acts chapter 20, he tells them this in verse 28, these men who are shepherds of the flock. In Acts chapter 20 and in verse 28, he tells them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Paul says the church belongs to Jesus. It's not ours to do with as we please, to remodel, to tweak, to change, to adjust. It's His. He died for His church. He paid for it with His own blood. Doesn't that mean then that Jesus gets to say what is done with His church? And since Jesus has said what He wants done with His church, it's right here, it's in the recipe, it's in the instruction manual, then don't we then have an obligation? Don't we have a responsibility to actually do it in His way? In fact, maybe let's not talk about responsibility and obligation. Don't we have a desire And don't we have a willingness, a want to, to go that extra mile in order to please Him? In fact, that leads right into this second reason as to why we need to be willing to go to the trouble of restoring Christ's original pattern for the church. And that's because anything else, anything else is just going to be unacceptable. In the Gospel of Matthew, please, a couple of passages very quickly and we'll bring this lesson to a close. In Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, Jesus talks here to some very religious people, the Pharisees. But these are some people who had made some changes, some tweaks, some alterations to the worship of God. And so he says to them about what they had done in Matthew 15 and in verse 7, he says, Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here were some people who had altered, who had adjusted the word of God to suit themselves, and Jesus' response is, you're wasting your time. It is vain what you are doing. It is empty. It is unacceptable. Just because a church has the appearance of being a New Testament church, maybe they have the word Christ somewhere out on the sign. Just because a church maybe has members who are very sincere and very devoted to what it is that they are doing, that is not the standard by which Jesus gives His stamp and His seal of approval. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus actually points out what does make the difference. In Matthew chapter 7, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about people who are going to be accepted and people who are not going to be accepted. And what's the dividing line in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That passage is jolting, and it is jarring, and it is arresting. Because it announces to us in no uncertain terms that good intentions are not the same as doing the will of the Father in heaven. Figuring out what God wants, and then doing it His way, that is the only way to be accepted. And so I think about those two Egyptologists that we began with, who went to all that trouble to find the right ingredients, and to go about baking that bread in exactly the right way. Ultimately, for them, it was worth all of that trouble, so that they could have genuine authentic, old kingdom bread. And in the same way for you and I today, I need you you to know, it is not Pharisaic, and it is not legalistic for us to say, hey, can't we just do it this way? Can't we just do it the Bible way? Jesus says that that matters. And if we will go to the trouble of seeking out those old paths, if we will go to the trouble of restoring New Testament Christianity, then ultimately... Ultimately for us, it is going to be worth it. Because we'll get to hear those wonderful words when the Lord says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, at the end of the day, it actually all comes full circle. It comes right back to that ingredient that we began with this morning. And that is, do we have good and honest hearts that are willing to yield and to submit to the clear Word of God? One final verse this morning, and I'll actually put it on the screen. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 22. And this verse has actually come to mean a great deal to me. The older that I've gotten, the more that I've thought about the significance of it. In Proverbs 22 and in verse 28, the wise man says there, Do not move the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient landmark. Can I say to our young people right now, who sometimes get a little bit restless with this plain, simple, New Testament Christianity stuff. And can I maybe even say to all of the rest of us, who maybe from time to time we get a little bit of an itch, we get a little bit anxious, and we want to try to change that 2,000-year-old pattern. Can I say to you and can I say to me, don't move the ancient landmark. Or maybe to update that into the vernacular of this sermon. Don't 
change the ancient recipe. This recipe, it is as good as it gets. No one will ever come along and be able to improve upon it. All we want to do is follow this recipe as closely as we can, as faithfully as we can, so that we can truly be a genuine and authentic church of Christ. And May the Lord help us to that end. Now, as we get ready to extend the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I should tell you that there are lots of different ideas floated around in the religious world today about salvation and how you go about being saved. But I need you to know that the New Testament recipe for salvation, it is very clear and it is very singular. That it all begins with believing in Jesus Christ as God's Son. Confessing Him before men, Romans 10, 9 and 10, talks about belief and confession and the important role that that plays in our salvation. Furthermore, Acts 2 verse 38 tells us that we need to repent, turn away from sin, and then we need to be baptized. That is to be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. You put all of that together, that's what we call God's plan of salvation. That's how a person becomes a Christian. And I'm going to tell you this morning that if you've done something different from that and you think that you are saved... You are not. That's not the recipe. You're walking around as a counterfeit, as a phony, and today is the day that you need to fix that. You need to yield and submit yourself to the will of God. Follow His recipe. You can leave here this morning knowing that you are a child of God. You are a member of the body of Christ. Can we help you to become a Christian? Brother or sister, can we help you to be a better Christian, to restore you back to the fold and back to faithful service once more? Whatever your need may be, we stand ready to assist you in whatever way that we can. Won't you make that known by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing?